0: So this morning, we're looking at the sixth letter in Revelation, the letter to the Philadelphian church. And Philadelphia should have been a very wealthy city. It was located along the main trade route between the eastern and western halves of the Roman Empire, which would have brought a lot of wealth through the city. And on top of that, it was located in an area that had a lot of very rich volcanic soil that was perfect for growing grapes, which would have meant a lot of wine and a lot of its own wealth that it produced. But the same volcano that produced the rich soil brought earthquakes. And in 17 AD, the city was nearly leveled by a massive earthquake that probably would have destroyed the lives of everyone there if the Roman Emperor hadn't provided aid for them. Strabo, an ancient historian, said that it was so bad that the city was so close to this earthquake that it felt aftershocks for decades after, and that the city was so racked by constant shaking that they would find new cracks in the city walls every day, and every day they would have to go out and repair these cracks and just wait for the next big one to finally come. In a time when everyone was flocking to cities for safety, most people would live outside the city walls because it was just too dangerous to risk sleeping inside. And here in the Midwest, you don't really think about earthquakes that much. But my wife and I are from California, and we know earthquakes... We know that you can have the best plans, you can have the best building codes, you can have the best scientific equipment that's going to give you that whole seven seconds of warning before it hits. But when the big one comes, there's nothing you're going to be able to do about it. And if the wildfires, or if the earthquakes don't get you, the wildfires will. I grew up in this house that was just this big, square adobe structure. I mean, it looked like it was made out of solid rock. But when the wildfire came through, it looked like it was made of old paper mache and you could just push your hand right through it. And that's what it was like for Philadelphia. It was a wealthy trading post, prosperous wine producer, and a dangerous place to live. And in the midst of it, there's this small group of believers. They're weak. They're poor. They've been persecuted by the Jews. And yet they're one of the only two churches that Jesus doesn't have any rebuke for because they held fast to him in their weakness. And some of you sitting here this morning know what the Philadelphians felt like. You know all too well what it feels like to be completely broken and weak and to have the people in power over you just kick you while you're down over and over again. You spend all day fixing today's crack knowing that tomorrow there's just going to be a new crack and another one after that and another one after that. And you just wonder when the big one's finally going to bring everything crashing down on top of you. And that is who Jesus is writing to here in Philadelphia. He says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. This is how Christ identifies himself to the Philadelphians, and there's so much here. This is the driving force behind everything else that he has to say to them, and we can't understand what he has to say to them unless we first understand what it is that he has to say about who he is. He is the Holy One, This is a title used throughout the Old and the New Testaments to describe God, and there can be no doubt that Jesus Christ is God Almighty. John 1 says that no one has seen the Father, but he who sits at the right hand of the Father, Jesus, he has made him known. If no one has seen the Father, then that means that any time God reveals himself to his people, that's Jesus When God walked through the garden with Adam and Eve, that was Jesus. When Moses asked to see God's face and God said, you can't do that. That would destroy you. But I'll let you look at just the hem of my robe through the rock and just that was so glorious that it made Moses' face shine forever. That was Jesus. When Ezekiel saw God seated on his sapphire throne looking as though he were made of fiery metal and he, he fell on his face like a dead man because he couldn't bear the sight of it. That was Jesus. When Isaiah saw the angels flying around the throne covering their faces and their feet and crying out to one another for all of eternity holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. They were singing about Jesus. And when Isaiah saw that and fell on his face and cried out, Woe is me, I am undone. That was Jesus. He is the one who spoke the universe into being and sustains it moment by moment. He is the one who made his everlasting covenants with Adam and Noah and Abraham and David He is Adonai, Elohim, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the Holy One of Israel. He is the true one. He is the authentic and faithful Messiah. Even now as believers, we look around the world and it makes a lot of promises to us jobs that promise success and provision, relationships that promise identity and safety, cars and houses and clothes and stuff that promises us status. And in the end, we always realize that it was, it talked a big game, but it was just that. It was talk. And yet we still think maybe this time, I'll get what I want. I'll get what I need. C.S. Lewis said, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And that might be the best thing that Lewis ever wrote, but there's one problem with it. We're not ignorant. We've been to the seaside. We know what we have in Christ, and yet we think, yeah, but the, the slum is pretty nice. We've tasted of the feast of Christ and we still think, yeah, but those mud pies. And what does Christ do? He stands between us and the Father still. And He says, Father, don't look at them. They're still mine. Look at me. Don't look at their stained clothes, their mud-covered faces. Just look at me. And then he turns to us and sometimes gently, sometimes firmly, says, it's time to see the mud pies for what they are. It's time to come back and enjoy the feast. Even when we chase after the fleeting pleasures of this world, he remains our true and faithful bridegroom. He is the one who has the key of David. He has been given the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles real quick to Psalm chapter 2 and we'll be right back in Revelation, but I just want to look at Psalm 2 and see what it means that Jesus has been given the keys of the kingdom. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry with you and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed are all who take refuge in Him. See, the problem is we still believe the first lie the devil ever told us. You can be like God. If you could just manage to kill Him, you could be king. You could be the one on the throne. And that's what all of our sin is. It is treason and attempted assassination. And what is Christ's response? He just laughs. Humanity plots and it counsels and it arms itself for battle. He doesn't pick up sword and shield. He doesn't meet them in battle. He doesn't meet violence with violence, he just laughs. And he has just to speak, and they fall away. But blessed are all who take refuge in him. He is the one who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. He told the disciples before he ascended, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. There is no one who can countermand his orders. He's already won the victory. He has defeated sin and death. He has closed the mouth of the grave and opened the gates of heaven, and there is nothing that can change that. We know that there is nothing in all of creation that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Remember Philadelphia. Remember Edgewater, who it is that says these things to you. He is the God of the universe, your faithful Messiah, who sits securely on his throne and reigns supremely. He is the Holy One the true one, the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one shuts, who shuts and no one opens. And what does he say to Philadelphia? I know your works. Is that a comforting thought or a scary one? I know your works, Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. The church in Philadelphia is probably small. Like most churches, it would have started out by gathering in the synagogue before being expelled by the Jewish leaders. And it's hard for us to fully grasp what that would have meant for them. The Jewish believers must have been ecstatic when they first heard the gospel. I mean, their entire lives had been spent in this eager, desperate anticipation that the promised Messiah has to come eventually, and he's finally here. They had spent all their lives, their parents had spent their lives, and their parents' their lives, all the way back to Adam and Eve when God first promised There is a son that's coming that will crush the head of the serpent. And he's finally here. They probably couldn't have waited to tell the other Jewish people there in Philadelphia, he's here, you're not going to believe it. But they didn't believe it. and for the Jewish believers that had been expelled from the, temple, or from the synagogue, this would have meant that all of their ties to who they were had been severed. This was their tie to their heritage and to their God. They'd spent all their lives part of this small, tight-knit community thousands of miles away from home by our standards. There was no way to go back, and they've been cut off from the people that they'd followed all their lives and told, you have no portion with God or his people. And the Gentile believers probably wouldn't have fared much better. Following this obscure cult that nobody had heard of, of this Christ, wouldn't have garnered too much attention in and of itself. But denying the divinity of the emperor... He's the one who saved us from the earthquake, not this Christ. And denying the divinity of Dionysus, the God of wine, he's the one who gives us our crop every year. He's the one who provides for us, not this Christ. And it was often hard for believers to find work after they came to salvation because nobody in Philadelphia would want you to work in their vineyard if you didn't worship Dionysus. Dionysus would be angry with you and punish my crops because of it. No, you can't work here. And through all that, they held on to Christ only to be rejected now by these leaders who so ostensibly claim to follow the same God that they do. all of the believers in Philadelphia were well acquainted with suffering and rejection for Christ. And some of them probably thought at some point, am I I in the right, or have I really been cut off from God? And Jesus is reminding them, I am the one who opens, I am the one who shuts, there is nothing that anyone can do. No family, no friends, no synagogue leaders. There is no one who can separate you from me. I have opened up heaven to you. And it's not like the Philadelphians were being attacked by just anyone. At the very least, this, the Jewish people there should have been able to sympathize with them as a fellow small, marginalized group in the city. And on top of that, these had been their leaders forever. This, They used to be friends. They used to be family. And some of you know what that's like. To feel completely broken and rejected and cut off. And to just think, but I I trusted you. And it's not like they were being attacked by some great power. They weren't being attacked by the emperor himself. This was the local synagogue. The believers were probably the only group in Philadelphia that were smaller and weaker than they were. Some of you know what that's like, too, to think, Power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely, but this has to be the least amount of power that's ever corrupted anyone. And that stings too, because if the person beating me is that weak, what does that say about me? And I think it's safe to say that none of us here are in danger of growing discouraged or denying Christ because the local synagogue rejects us. And none of us have experienced here in the U.S. the sort of systematic persecution that the Philadelphians experienced. You know, we in our context of the modern American church, (sighs) Edgewater might not have an abundance of resources that other churches have, but From a global and a historical perspective, we've got it pretty good. We're pretty strong. Some of us haven't ever experienced the kind of brokenness that the Philadelphians had. And so for those who feel pretty strong, who haven't experienced the kind of weakness Philadelphia had, the kind that leaves you completely broken, Day after day, year after year, just being kicked while you're down over and over again. There's just four things that I want to point out really quickly. The first is, whatever strength we feel we have, it is purely the free gift of God. It's not because we worked harder, it's not because we have an ironclad will, It's the gift of God, and it's not guaranteed to last. We can wake up one morning, and it's all gone. Second, as we saw in Psalm 2, God doesn't admire our strength. God doesn't need our strength to accomplish his purposes. He finds it contemptible. He just laughs at it. He just laughs. And what did the only person with real strength do when he saw the weakness of others? He didn't sit back and think, well, I'm glad I'm not like them. No, he got down in the muck and the mire with his people and gave them his strength. He invited the weary and the heavy laden to come to him that he might give them rest. And finally... For those of us who feel pretty strong, spiritually we are all this weak. We're all as weak as the Philadelphians. It's just easy to forget it when we're so comfortable. But this is our true condition without Christ. Not all of us know what it feels like for the Philadelphians. But I know some of you do. And what is it that Christ says to them? I know. I know your works. I know that you've suffered for my name. And I know that you have held fast to me. Philadelphians were weak, and they knew it. But they also knew that they needed to hold on to, for all they were worth, the all-sufficient, omnipotent strength of Christ. And they refused to let go. They knew that he had already won the victory and that they would share in that conquering. And Christ said to them the same thing that he said to Paul. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And I think the Philadelphians were able to say wholeheartedly with Paul, therefore I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak then I am strong. So all of that just covers Jesus' opening statements. We haven't even gotten to what he actually has to say to Philadelphians. But like I said, that is the driving force of everything that he has to say, that he is God Almighty, their Messiah, the reigning king, and the rest of the letter is about what happens when the weak hold fast to his victory. Verse 9, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. He knows your suffering. He's not blind to it. He hasn't forgotten it. He knows you've been wronged and he promises you victory. But what is victory? I mean, victory means it's over, right? It's done. You get to sit back and relax now. Some of the Philadelphians probably thought at one point or another, if if this is victory, why is it so hard? Christ never wants his people to be uninformed about what following him means. He promised that if the world hated and persecuted him, it will hate and persecute his people. That following him means taking up your cross, the means of your own execution and following him. It means dying to self, and sometimes it means dying. But there's still victory in that, because after the crown of thorns comes the crown of glory. God had promised the people... In Isaiah, that in the end he would gather all the peoples of the earth together, all of the nations, and make them bow before Israel and know that they are his people. And the Jewish leaders assumed that he was talking about them. They're they're the people of Israel. And Jesus says, No, the reality is that they have rejected me. And in the end, they are the ones who are going to bow before you and know that I have loved you. Some of you have been treated like you're worthless. Just a number, a cog in the machine, a product to be used and thrown away. And Jesus promises, in the end, I will hold you up for all of creation to know, this one's mine. I love her. I love him. The good news is, as hard as things are right now, it's going to get worse before it gets better. Verse 10, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. He warns them that there is more hardship coming. There's an hour of trial coming on the whole world, but he promises them that he will keep them from this hour. So does that mean that We don't have to experience it, that we'll escape unscathed. The language that Jesus uses here is the same that he uses in the high priestly prayer in John 17 when he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. We're still in this world. We still experience the onslaughts of the evil one, and I think it's safe to say that in that hour, none of us are going to feel strong. But as we become weaker, he remains strong. And he is still victorious even in that, even when it continues to get harder, even when the whole world comes under that hour of trial, he is still victorious, and he ensures that we may be afflicted but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. He will keep us. I am coming soon. Jesus knows the weakness of his people. and He knew that Philadelphia and we needed that by now. I am coming soon. Time can seem to drag by, especially when we're in the midst of suffering. But he is not slow, as some count slowness, and in the blink of an eye, all of the pain and the suffering and the brokenness will be over and he will be here in all of his glory and we will fully experience his victory. And He's in the light of his imminent return, he exhorts them, hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. And the crown here would have been the laurel wreath given to an athlete after a championship or a general after a great victory. It was a symbol of honor and triumph. He says, hold fast so that no one may seize your crown. So is he saying, you better watch out so that nobody snatches your salvation away? You have to hold on or you're going to lose it. No, I think what he's saying is, We've already won the crown. The race is over. The battle has been decided. Don't be crushed under the weight of your suffering and your brokenness. I've already won. Hold fast to what you have. And what you have is Him. This verse reminds me of my favorite Charles Spurgeon quote, and he said, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me upon the rock of ages. I've learned to kiss the wave that throws me upon the rock of ages. Some of you here this morning feel like you're drowning in a stormy sea, like you're being battered and thrown about by the waves, and as you're Lungs are burning. You slam up against that rock. And when that happens, there is nothing in all of the world that could persuade you to let go of that rock. And that is what Jesus is saying. Hold fast to what you have. Hold fast to the rock of ages. Hold fast to me. He promises, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. John tells us later in Revelation 21 that there is no temple in heaven, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. There will be no temple, just the pure Unfiltered presence of Christ. And he says, I will make you a pillar in my temple and you will never go out of it. There are no weak pillars. At least none that can stand the test of time. In the end, there will be no more weakness, no more brokenness, no more daily cracks to have to be patched up. No more wondering when everything's going to f- finally come crashing down after the big one. Just standing in the presence of Christ, fully secure, fully at rest. And in case there could still be any more doubt, he says and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. God doesn't give names idly. When he gives someone a new name, they become what he has called them. You are Simon, the son of John, but I will call you... (laughs) Cephas, Peter, the rock. I'll be honest, I look at Simon and I don't see somebody who's very rock-like. He's hot-headed. He shoots off his mouth. If he lives by any code, it's if you're going to be wrong, be boldly wrong. But Jesus says, no, Simon, I'm going to call you the rock. And you are going to be the rock. He will engrave on you the name of the Heavenly Father, the name of His kingdom, and His own name. There can be no doubt that you are a child of the Father, a citizen of the kingdom and His bride. And in the end, He will hold you up for all of creation to know, this one is mine, I love them. He is the God of all creation, your faithful Messiah, the reigning King. He is coming soon. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Lord, you are King. You are victorious. And I pray that you would give us the same desperate anticipation for your second coming that your people had when they were waiting for your first coming. That we would feel our weakness and know that in that weakness your power is perfected and that there is nothing that could possibly Persuade us to let go. Lord, give us your strength. Because we are weak. We pray all this in your holy name. Amen.